May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O Lord. There is a faith-based group in Arizona called No More Deaths. They place jugs of water and cans of beans and blankets for migrants in the most forbidding parts of the desert near the Mexican border. In January of this year, a federal magistrate judge in Arizona convicted four volunteers with no more death on misdemeanor charges relating to their leaving food and water in a national wildlife refuge. No more deaths says that 155 migrants have been found dead in the refuge since 2001. The charges against the volunteers? Entering a wildlife refuge without a permit and abandoning personal property there. The defendants faced up to six months in prison. The judge sentenced them to 15 months of unsupervised probation, fined each of them $250, and ordered them never to enter the refuge again. Earlier this month, a member of No More Deaths, Scott Warren, was tried in Tucson for providing water, food, beds, and clean clothes to two migrants who had entered the United States illegally. He faced three felony charges carrying potential penalties of up to 20 years in prison. Prosecutors alleged that he had attempted to shield the migrants from law enforcement for several days. His lawyer argued that his actions were not criminal. Scott Warren, the lawyer said, is a law-abiding, life-giving, good Samaritan. The jury could not agree on a verdict, so the judge declared a mistrial. The prosecutors will announce on July 2nd whether they will retry Mr. Warren. Today's epistle reading highlights the differences between the laws of Paul's time and the teachings of Christ. Before faith came, he wrote, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith could be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian, for in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. There is no longer Jew or Greek. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring. This is radical stuff. Both the civil and religious laws of Paul's time drew sharp distinctions among classes of people. Slavery was an established feature of the law, the economy, and society throughout the Roman Empire and the Middle East. Slavery is recognized in many places in the Old Testament. In fact, in the 19th century, some Americans, Jefferson Davis and some clergy among them, argued that the Bible justified slavery. In Paul's time, slaves were property. Women were also regarded as property. Note that there are commandments against coveting your neighbor's goods and coveting your neighbor's wife there is no commandment against coveting your neighbor's husband. Women were like goods. 
and the difference between Jews and Gentiles was profound. Jews were the chosen. Jews were the children of Abraham. But here Paul is saying that in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. If you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring, regardless of your birth. Male or female, slave or free, these things no longer matter, Paul said. But unfortunately, more than 2,000 years later, differences of race, religion, ethnicity, national origin, gender, sexual orientation, and economic status still matter. They matter a lot. And some of the differences are still recognized in law. What is the Christian to do when confronted by a conflict between the notion that we are one in Christ Jesus, as Paul put it, and laws that divvy us up? What if the Christian feels called to leave water and food and clothes and bedding in the desert for migrants who have entered the United States illegally because we are all one in Christ Jesus? It is not an easy question. For me, the best guidance and answer it I found comes from Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail, written in April 1963. Dr. King had been arrested during a nonviolent march against segregation in Birmingham. While he was in jail on Good Friday, April 12th, eight white Alabama clergymen published what they called a call for unity. The first listed signatory was the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of Alabama. The statement, seven paragraphs long, was a politely worded blast at Dr. King and the demonstrations, the nonviolent but illegal demonstrations he had led. The clergy urged that civil rights issues be pursued in the courts. We strongly urge our own Negro community, they said, to withdraw support from these demonstrations. They counseled patience. The statement concluded with an appeal to both our white and Negro citizenry to observe the principles of law and order. An ally of Dr. King's smuggled a newspaper with a call for unity into the Birmingham jail. Over four days, Dr. King composed a response in the form of a letter to the eight clergymen. If you print his text, it runs to 12 single-spaced pages. It is elegant, brilliant, beautifully written, nuanced, scholarly, respectful, and a devastating takedown of his fellow clergy. My dear fellow clergymen, his letter began, ouch. Dr. King addressed the law and order point of the authors of the call to action. He said, you express a great deal of anxiety over our willingness to break laws. This is certainly a legitimate concern. Since we so diligently urge people to obey the Supreme Court's decision of 1954, outlawing segregation in the public schools, at first glance, it may seem rather paradoxical for us consciously to break laws. One might well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust 
I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal, but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Dr. King drew on St. Augustine and St. Thomas Aquinas. He asked, now what is the difference between the two? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? A just law is man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. Any law that uplifts humanity is just. Any law that degrades human personality is unjust. This is, to me, another way of saying we are one in Christ. Dr. King concluded this section of his letter by emphasizing the importance of accepting the legal consequences of one's actions, as he always did. In no sense do I advocate evading or defying the law, as would the rabid segregationist, he said. That would lead to anarchy. One who breaks an unjust law must do so openly, lovingly, and with a willingness to accept the penalty. I submit that an individual who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust and who willingly accepts the penalty of imprisonment in order to arouse the conscience of the community over its injustice is in reality expressing the highest respect for the law. Dr. King's distinction between just and unjust laws might seem to be in the eyes of the beholder but we have two bits of guidance in how we might reasonably make the call for ourselves. The first is in today's epistle. Paul's letter is first and foremost a call to faith. In one short paragraph, he mentions faith four times. Our faith must inform our decisions and our actions anytime we see or think we may see injustice. The second bit of guidance comes from Dr. King's letter, where he refers to the person who breaks a law that conscience tells him is unjust. I think this may be just a different way of making Paul's point about faith. We have a duty to cultivate well-formed consciences, consciences that are rigorous, disciplined, carefully considered, and always in conformity with our faith. If you lived in Arizona and there were hungry, dehydrated migrants with blistered feet nearby, what would you do? Would you leave food and water and clothing in a national wildlife refuge? A wildlife refuge. What an irony. And if you did, would you accept the legal consequences of your actions? These are the questions Paul's letter to the Galatians raised for us. I'll end with a happy note and a celebration of one of our Christ Church members. Today's epistle is about the oneness of all humanity. This past Friday, the Washington Post had a special section commemorating the 50th anniversary of the Apollo 11 moon landing. The section included reflections from 50 astronauts including our own General Charlie Bolden, four-time space shuttle astronaut and former head of NASA. 
Charlie spoke about the first time he saw Africa from space. He said, being an African-American, I had done a lot of study of African geography. I wanted to be able to look down and identify some of the potential countries from which my ancestors had come on the west coast of Africa. And it may sound stupid, because I thought I would be able to distinguish one country from another. And what absolutely amazed me was this massive landmass that went from the Mediterranean all the way down to the tip of South Africa with no borders or boundaries, going from the beautiful Mediterranean coast through the Sahara Desert, all the way down through the jungles in the equatorial region, and then down into South Africa, and not a single sign of an individual country. This one big mass. And I actually got tears in my eyes because that was my big wake-up call to the fact that we are all on this one planet together. We're not really divided and separate the way we've been taught to believe. In Christ, there is no east or west. Charlie and St. Paul think alike. Amen.